Let's stand together now and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 29. Sunday morning we're in a series entitled Gleanings from Genesis and if you're with us this morning and without a Bible, just flag one of these guys that's coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and they'll get one to you, marked to our passage this morning. And we want everyone to hear the Bible and, uh, and hear the Bible teaching, but also to see it with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Chapter 29, verse 1. And so Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said to him, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And then he said, Look, it is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and uh, go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all, uh, until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Laban went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his, brother's, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. And so she ran and told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And so he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should be your wages? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Uh, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, 
and uh, brought her to uh, Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his uh, maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah as a maid. Uh, as a maid. And so it came to pass in the morning that behold, and behold should be in upper caps, uh, 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 case letters in my opinion, uh, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? For th- uh, was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me with still another seven years. And then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And so he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban uh, still another uh, seven years. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would use our time in your word this morning um, to fashion our thinking, uh, our understanding of this world, our processing of life, to fashion our heart and to fashion our relationship with you and our understanding of you and your ways this morning. And we pray, Lord, for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we studied last week in chapter 28, uh, Jacob had a personal encounter with God at Bethel, and uh, an encounter that is oftentimes spoken of as his kind of conversion experience. The beginning of his personal relationship with God might be one way uh, to put it. And now, as is the case with every single person who has a similar experience Uh, with God. Anyone who has been saved, anyone who has uh, then entered into a personal relationship with God, as a result, God then begins his work of sanctification in Jacob. And one of God's means of sanctification in our lives can involve bringing a Laban into our lives uh, in order to remove uh, the Laban that exists within us. God had uh, tremendous plans in mind for Jacob. Uh, He will become the father of the men, the 12 sons, who will then become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. It will be through his bloodline, in addition to Abraham and Isaac's bloodline, that Jesus Christ will come as a savior into human history. But at the moment, there was an awful lot in Jacob that looked nothing like uh, God at all. And I think so it is with us. And thus, uh, the need for God's sanctification in our lives once he has saved us or once he has justified us. It is important as Christians to understand that there is a difference between God's justification and his sanctification within our lives. Those are uh, large words for some people, but they're important words to understand. 
Justification refers to what happens to us as Christians at the moment we become saved, at the moment that we are born again. And at that very moment that we become Christians, we are not only forgiven of our sins by God, not only does He pardon all of our sins, but the Bible teaches that He also justifies us. And that means that God takes the perfect righteousness, the perfect right-onness of Jesus Christ, and He puts it to our account. And now and forever, positionally speaking, when he looks at us as Christians, he sees us as justified. He sees us just as if we had never, ever sinned. And Paul writes of this in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he declares, For he, speaking of the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God uh, in him. And this justification is something that none of us can earn uh, from God. It is a judicial act of God that occurs uh, associated with our lives, and it is only God Almighty who has the authority to do so on the basis of our faith uh, in Jesus. C.I. Schofield who is the writer of the notes in the, famously in the Schofield Bible and commentator and Bible teacher in his own right, now long ago in heaven. But he declared of justification, and he put it this way. He said, justification takes place in the mind of God, uh, not in the nervous system of man. In other words, our justification having that standing before God, that is something that is founded entirely upon God. And it is not dependent upon how we feel in any given moment in time about ourselves or uh, in in the course of, of life. Well, because God has provided us with such a complete forgiveness of sins, because of our faith in Jesus, and because he has provided us with a right standing before uh, him in Jesus as well, we might be tempted to think, well, if God is going to forgive me of every sin that I'm ever going to commit, and he's always going to see me as righteous positionally, Uh, then I can live any way that I want and it won't matter. And that's a thought that is very, very appealing to Jacob, uh, but very, very appealing to any descendant of, of Adam and Eve. And as a result of that, the tendency that some of us would have to gravitate toward that kind of thinking, God declares, when God declares us forgiven, and righteous and justified upon becoming Christians, he also at that moment begins his work of sanctification in our lives, where he begins now to practically purify our lives. And not only removing sin from our lives, but removing anything that does not look like Christ uh, in, in our lives. And that is the work that that, uh, he, uh, that he, he does. And to progressively 
make our lives more and more holy and more and more set apart for His purposes uh, in our lives and, and through our lives. And we all understand this uh, as Christians. No sooner does God put his finger upon some area of his life that he's made us aware of that uh, is displeasing to him and that this is the next area of our life that he wants to work on changing and, and uh, eradicating from our lives. And uh, no sooner does he finish that work in that area of our lives than we immediately uh, get the sense that he now makes us aware of the very next thing that he's going to work on in, in that regard. And, uh, and it's important to understand as Christians that while justification occurs in an instant, in one moment in time at the beginning of our Christian uh, lives, God's work of sanctification uh, in our lives will go on until we're in heaven and, and then it will no longer be uh, required. There's an old saying that fits into all of this, and it speaks about the fact that God is the ultimate fisherman, uh, the ultimate fisher of men, and that not only does he catch us, but then he uh, cleans us after doing so. And uh, that reminds me of another saying in this regard, uh, and perhaps you've heard it, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much uh, to leave us that way. And it's a wonderful combination of how God's love is uh, manifested in, in, uh, in the two ways in the Christian life. He loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. And it's absolutely true. And it's true in our passage concerning Jacob, and it's true in our lives as well. He will not uh, leave us to live carnal lives all the rest of our lives. Now, God's means of sanctification, uh, the means by which he produces this uh, holiness within our lives can take a lot of different forms. Uh, I think he uses his word, uh, perhaps supremely in this regard. He certainly, this is a work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. He will use trials in our lives. He will use suffering in our lives to remove these uh, kind of uh, things uh, from our lives. He will use discipline. He will use uh, chastening. And he will use many, many other things, including one of the means uh, of God's sanctification in our lives. As we see it here in our passage this morning, is that it can involve bringing a dirty, no good, scoundrel, manipulative, carnal Laban into our lives in order to remove the dirty, no good, scoundrel, manipulative uh, Laban that it exists in us as well. And thus I've entitled this morning's message, uh, the cure for a Jacob uh, uh, is a Laban. Uh, I thought of another title as well. Uh, always remember, uh, there's a greater shyster in the world than you. But that was a little wordy, and uh, so I abandoned that uh, for the, the, the terser title. So let's briefly look at the, the narrative here. In, uh, here is Jacob. He arrives in Haran. And he's journeyed until he comes to his destination there in verse 1. 
And uh, it tells us that Jacob went on his journey. And uh, literally in the Hebrew, uh, Jacob lifted up his feet. So you remember at Bethel, as we saw last week, he has this encounter with God. God informs him that he is going to be the third of kind of the big three of the Jewish patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled through him and his bloodline. God told him that God was going to be his provider. God would be his protector in fulfilling all of these things. And that God would one day bring him back uh, to the land of, of Canaan. And upon uh, hearing those things, and he continues his 500-mile journey uh, to Haran, but now with a, a new spring in his step. I, think, I hope every one of us have experienced something like that in life, some bit of good news that has come to us, and, and then to experience the physical reaction our body has to it, all of a sudden there's a little lift in our uh, step, and he was feeling all of that. We're told further that, uh, that um, as he uh, makes his way here, upon arriving, uh, what he observed in verses 2 and 3 concerning Haran. It's the middle of the day. He's at the outskirts of the city. Uh, there's uh, uh, already three flocks of, of, uh, that are gathered uh, around a well waiting to, to be watered there in verse 2. We're further told that there was a large stone placed over the mouth uh, of, of the well. And uh, wells were very, very valuable things, especially in that part of the world. In those days, you did not want an animal, a goat, or a sheep, or something falling uh, way down into the depth of a well and now essentially poisoning the well uh, for a considerable length of time and making the water undrinkable. So it wasn't unusual for them uh, to be covered. Uh, Jacob, in verses 4 through 6, he engaged the men who were shepherding uh, the three flocks. He called them brethren because he was a shepherd as well in terms of his background. And then he asked them, verse 4, uh, where they were from. And they replied to that question, we are from Haran, which was the very, very place that uh, Jacob was looking to come. You remember in those days there was no GPS, there were no even road signs. You just kind of made your way, kind of word of mouth. And so now he discovers that he has come uh, to his, his destination, which was good news. He then inquired in verse 5 whether they knew his uncle Laban. And uh, their response was, we know him. Uh, that's a very terse response, isn't it? Uh, yes, him, we know him. And a uh, very, very tight-lipped uh, response. There could be a couple reasons for that. If you remember, Jacob is coming into uh, what uh, marked, certainly marked the ancient world and marks much of the world today. He's coming into a closed community, and he's a stranger. So even in the world today, if you come, if a stranger comes into a, a, a close-knit, ethnically uh, close-knit uh, neighborhood or city and comes on the scene and starts asking questions about somebody uh, in the family, people get tight-lipped. They don't know whether uh, you're CIA or you're FBI uh, or you're sheriff or, or you're a bill collector. Uh, it, it is also just as likely uh, in terms of, uh, of Laban and what we learn about him in the Bible. 
uh, is that nobody wanted to really admit that they knew much about him. Uh, that his name could very well have been mud in the city of uh, of Haran there, and uh, and uh, because he was, uh, nobody would really say what they wanted to say about him because he was so rich and so uh, powerful. He's a very shifty man, very much a manipulator, uh, and and a con man as well. And Jacob then asked about the health of his uh, uncle Laban in verse six. They told him that he was well. And that, in fact, his daughter Rachel was coming in the distance with uh, 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 the flock to come and water at the well uh, uh, additionally. Now, Jacob, and uh, in verses 7 and 8, because he is Jacob, and he just can't help himself, uh, he proceeded to make a suggestion to them about how they might tend these sheep a little bit better uh, in terms of what he's observed. And of course, everyone loves a perfect stranger just showing up on the job and on the scene and immediately telling everyone how to do their job. Uh, That's always the best way to show up on any job site and be warmly welcomed. In fact, uh, tell everyone everything that you know, not only within the first hour, but within the first five minutes, every observation uh, that, that you have. And, uh, and of course, he's going to get a brush back on this. But what Jacob was addressing here is significant to understanding him. It's about noontime, we're told, and these guys, they'd already called it a day. And, uh, and the watering of the, cat, of the cattle, usually that didn't occur until the end of, of a day. Uh, sheep could be watered intermittently through the day, but you always watered them and took them back out to graze some more. Uh, grazing time was important time if you are raising uh, cattle and raising sheep. Because it's only while they're eating that they're getting stronger and plumper and becoming more valuable, and uh, and uh, th- which is the whole idea in uh, in in raising them. And uh, so uh, here they are uh, camped, calling it a day in the middle of the day when they all of them, all of the animals should be out for additional grazing. And knowing a little bit about Jacob, it probably just killed him to see. Uh, this ma- mismanagement of, of their flocks. It just made no sense to him, and so much so that he felt he had to, to say something in order to help them become a little more effective and a little more productive in, in terms of, of what they were doing. Now, th- this incident, uh, as well as uh, uh, other incidents that will follow, they, they give us some very, very valuable insight into uh, Jacob. They help us to understand him a little bit more and in in understanding him a little bit more, perhaps for us to recognize uh, ourselves in Jacob a little bit more. Now, of course, Jacob demonstrates for sure. I mean, you've got some arrogance here, very much a lack of tact. But there's a lot to admire in in Jacob and what, what he does here. Jacob was a very hardworking uh, man. He was a very industrious man. 
He was a mover. He was a shaker. He was a doer. You would never have to tell a Jacob what to do or what to tell, uh, do him next. You would never have to put a man like that under any kind of significant supervision. Uh, he was a self-starter and self-motivated in his, his work. He's also clearly very, very smart, very, very sharp. He's the kind of guy that shows up on a scene, any scene you put him in, and he instantaneously, in a moment, assesses the entire thing. From top to bottom, left to right, he sees what he sees, but he doesn't just see what he sees, but he also processes it in a way to try and find out if what I am seeing here can be done better than how it is being done. And he was absolutely intolerant of laziness or sloppy work uh, in himself and certainly concerning others as well. And those traits in, in life, just possessing those traits alone in life, uh, they'll take you very, very far. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. And in a moment, uh, we're going to see something in him that, that might surprise us in kind of filling out this portrait of, of Jacob. And that he was a man of, of, uh, capable of deep emotion and, uh, and uh, sincere emotion. When he, when he ultimately greets Rachel with a kiss and with joyous weeping, as we're told in verse 11. And then when he uh, almost wildly, as we're told in verse 18, is uh, wanting to marry Rachel and provide a dowry for it. I mean, he committed himself to seven years of hard labor in order to secure her uh, and the promise of her for uh, his wife. And so if we were to view Jacob as just this kind of a cold-hearted, brooding, kind of ever-stalking manipulator, we wouldn't know anything about him at all. And it would be completely unfair. Uh, Nobody is all one thing or another. We are a combination of many things. I think one commentator put it so well as he famously declared concerning uh, Jacob and looking at the bright side of his life as well. He said, no man could be a bad man who loved as Jacob loved Rachel. And there's a lot of truth uh, in that. Uh, their response to his counsel and his instruction is there in verse 8. And essentially they said, we don't care how you did it, where you come from. This is how we do it uh, here. And what they didn't realize at the moment was that they were talking to the man who was very shortly to become their boss. And sometimes that happens in life. What's the old joke? I bought it. But, you know, what do you uh, call people who were nerds when you were in school? Uh, now you call them boss. And life has a way of, of things uh, turning around as it as it unfolds. Uh, people who are on top at one moment are not on top uh, so often years later. 
Jacob's first encounter with Rachel is given to us in verses 9 through 12. She was a shepherdess, and thus she brings the flock to the well, and Jacob watered her flock. So this might be a little bit of Old Testament showing off and uh, that is, is going on. And I don't know if you know it, ladies, but uh, when guys have their eyes on someone, they're going to find a way to show off. You have to distinguish yourself from all of the other competition in some way. And, uh, and so uh, some of that might be going on, flexing the muscles as he pulls the stone off. I always like that commercial there was a radio commercial. It's been a few months ago since I heard it, but it was either talking about um, talking to dads who were foster dads or just talking to dads in general and, uh, and, and how to... Uh, here's a dad trying to counsel his boy his, and, and, the, and the young man or the boy is saying, uh, you know, something about wanting to impress a girl. And he says, you know, go find heavy things and lift them in front of her and make lots of noises while you do it, you know. And uh, I don't know, maybe you got to be a guy to get a kick out of that. And the idea was, listen, uh, dads or foster dads, uh, you don't need to be an expert at this. I mean, that's not the greatest advice in, in life. But um, uh, it, 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 in order to just be there and say something and give some input... And, and the appreciation of it. And so here he is. He's going to distinguish himself here uh, in, in, in this way. We should notice uh, there in verse 10 that uh, it, it does tell us that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, uh, his mother's brother, uh, but it didn't stop there. And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Uh, that he went near and he rolled away the stone and watered uh, the flock. So this is a guy that doesn't have a single eye here. There's a lot that's in play. Remember, he's a, he's a manipulator. Uh, he's a bit of a con man uh, himself. So he greets uh, Rachel there in verse 11, greets her with a kiss. Wow, he's moving fast. And... Uh, she probably said something like to him, whoa, bro, stay in your own lane. So, so all right, I'm using all the commercials I know and, and have watched in the last year and trying to work it into the sermon. Uh, but it, it wouldn't have been extraordinary for a relative to uh, introduce themselves and then and, and kiss them in a modest way on the cheek in, that, in, in that, that culture. And then he begins to weep for joy. And, uh, and informed her that he was a relative. And then she responded by what? Running. Uh, running to her father to inform her, him of this relative that has come in such a dramatic way into their lives here. Jacob then uh, met Laban in verses 13 and 14. Laban comes out to meet him, greets him with a big uh, embrace and a kiss, brings him to uh, his own house, and uh, Jacob then explains to Laban that he's a relative, probably telling him all about Isaac, his father, Rebekah, his mother, who was Laban's uh, sister, got him all updated on everything, 
And then Laban's response in verse 14 as he uh, acknowledged Jacob as a blood relative, and he proceeded to let Jacob stay with him for a period uh, of a month. And at the end of that month, we're told in verse 15, Laban then offers Jacob uh, a job. Now, please don't understand Jacob to be like been lounging around the house for a month, uh, going to bed at two in the morning and then getting up at 11 in the morning and uh, playing his guitar. And uh, uh, sorry about that for those of you who are musicians, but <laughs> that's your reputation. And I know you, we know you hold meaningful jobs as well. It's just a joke. So, um, so when he was with him for that month, he was working hard, and, uh, and he wasn't a slacker at all, and Laban sees what a self-starter he is, what a hard worker he is, and I don't care if you're herding flocks or you're doing what in life, you notice people like that because they can be very helpful to you in advancing whatever it is that you're making money on uh, in, in whatever industry. So he takes note of him uh, immediately and doesn't want to let him get away, so to speak, and he essentially offered Jacob a job and uh, asking him his terms. And, uh, and he, 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 he tells Jacob to ask his terms, but he does remind him that we're relatives. So he wants the family break, uh, the family discount, whatever it is. And then verses 16 through 18, Jacob, I mean, he doesn't even hesitate for a second. Uh, in, in a month's time, he's got this all figured out in answering Laban, and he committed to working seven long years uh, in order to be able to marry Rachel, uh, there in verse 18. Now, this decision by uh, Jacob is a very wild, emotional uh, decision. Not to marry Rachel, but what he's willing to pay uh, for her. He's penniless. He has no money. He can't offer Laban a dowry. All he has to offer Laban in terms of wealth is to sell his future, uh, the potential of earnings. And, and he, so he offers seven years of that in order to uh, be able to marry the youngest daughter, uh, Rachel, and, uh, and an almost insanely high price uh, to, uh, to, uh, ma- to pay to marry Rachel. A year's labor would have been uh, more than adequate in, in the ancient world in, in such a, a, a regard. But this is the decision that he makes and, and, and what he declares. And all of it to me is reminiscent of, of Esau uh, and his emotional decision to sell his birthright uh, to uh, Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now we're given in verse 20 the reason for Jacob's decision. And uh, this is a guy who negotiates. This is a guy who works a deal. And so you wonder, why in the world did he not work this deal uh, the way that we've seen him already in, uh, in the book of Genesis? And we're told it was because of the love that he had for Rachel. And so uh, clearly he did not want what, 
This was one negotiation that he was entering into that he did not want to do anything that would cause him uh, to, to lose the deal, to run the risk of, of Laban's uh, refusal. Now, if Laban was a man of character, uh, because he was a much older man, much older than, than uh, Jacob, uh, he would never have taken advantage of this young relative's uh, uh, eagerness and uh, in terms of, of marrying uh, the daughter. Uh, he would have sat him down and uh, explained that this offer was excessive. I'm thankful that you saw see my daughter in such a light, that you love her in such a way. There's so much about what you're doing here that is, is, is commendable, but I could not take that from you and live with myself um, here is a more reasonable uh, dowry to offer to me. Uh, but Laban is not a man of character, and he probably could not hear, believe his ears that he's being offered seven years uh, it, it, for um, his, his daughter's uh, hand in marriage. He quickly closed the deal, and, uh, but he does very, very coolly. I mean, he's, he's poker-faced, he's poker-voiced, He's poker-worded, and uh, he closes it with the words, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Uh, as if he's doing Jacob a favor here, and, uh, or he could just kind of uh, give, you know, take or leave the deal that, that's been put in front of him. Now, significantly, in verses 16 and 17, uh, we're told that Laban had two daughters. He had uh, the oldest daughter, Leah, uh, who is, is said to have had um, uh, weak eyes. And so something about the description makes us realize that she was not as strikingly beautiful as Rachel was, and probably uh, very plain in comparison. Uh, Rachel is described, uh, 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 as she's described here, is an absolute knockout physically. Beautiful of form and appearance. In other words, she is uh, beautiful from head uh, to toe. And Jacob then, as we're told in verse 20, he served Laban seven years for Rachel. And uh, we're told that the, two, the time just flew by uh, because he loved her so much. Now that is quite a love. Uh, for years to seem like days in anticipation of, of that marriage. At the end of the seven years, in verse 21, it is Jacob who reminds Laban of the deal, that the seven years have gone by and now is the time for me to receive your daughter as my wife. You notice that Laban wasn't watching. Uh, the calendar very closely. If it had wandered off into eight or nine years, he would have uh, been happy to have it uh, uh, occur. And so Laban then in verse 22, he threw a great wedding feast associated with their, uh, their wedding. And the Hebrew word that is used there for feast, uh, it, it emphasizes that surely uh, food was present at this feast. But the Hebrew word that is, is used uh, is a word that describes the supremacy of alcohol at a particular uh, feast and the drinking that uh, went on. And I don't think that there can be any doubt at all that the provision 
of all of this alcohol by Laban, and he is a, a miser uh, by nature, was intended supremely to ensure that Jacob would be sufficiently um, impaired so as to assure that his pet plan uh, to pull the switcheroo on him that night would uh, be successful. And thus we're told when it was time, uh, verses 23 and 24, for Jacob and Rachel now to retire to their tent uh, to consummate their marriage, that Laban, instead of bringing Rachel uh, to Jacob, and obviously heavily veiled, uh, he brought Leah uh, to him. And uh, we don't know whether it's between the wine, uh, between the heavy clothing that women wore in those days, as a, in terms of modesty, the veil, the absolute darkness within the tent. But Jacob did not realize that he was lying with Leah as opposed to uh, Rachel. And apparently Leah goes along with this. Uh, and and I, I doubt that this seven-year agreement was a secret to anyone in the family. And uh, maybe out of a fear for her father who has put her up to all of this, or maybe she sincerely loved uh, Jacob, but whatever the, uh, uh, the reason, she played her part in, in the deception accordingly. And then upon awakening in the morning, Jacob... Uh, uh, went to roll over and look at his beautiful wife, and there was Leah lying uh, next to him. I would love a picture uh, of just that instant of what happened uh, uh, on, his, on his face. I suppose as, as women in the room, we could uh, flip roles or whatever it might be, and, uh, but I know that any guy in the room can understand uh, the, the utter disorientation that, uh, that must have hit him. Have you, have you ever, uh, like, um, uh, gone to grab a glass of something out of the refrigerator or on the counter or something, and uh, you thought it was orange juice, and then it was milk? And there's just that disorienting moment where... Uh, what your mind thought it was and was going to be, and then trying to catch up with what it actually is. And uh, this is all going on uh, for him. Is this a dream? Am I, this can't be, uh, be happening uh, uh, here. And his, brains are try his brain is trying to catch up with the fact that how is Leah lying uh, beside me? I mean, you put yourself in his shoes... He has worked seven years of hard labor. And it's not just the labor. Seven years as an expression of the love that he felt for this woman. And that he thought he had married the night before. And, and, uh, and this, this day has come, the day that you've dreamed of. She's going to be my wife forever. And then this shock. And then having uh, lain with uh, Leah, that can't be undone. And she can't be given back. And beyond that, uh, Jacob has to now be thinking whether uh, now this means that he has any chance at Rachel at all. 
in terms of the father giving Rachel to him. And so what Laban did here to Jacob, to Rachel, to Leah, I mean, it's just beyond, uh, beyond cruel. He just puts all of his wealth, seven more years of making more money and all of this, and, and he, he, he puts it above everything else, everyone else, doesn't care one bit about the damage that it would do to all of them, the, the track that it would set them on in life. He's just a horrible horrible, small-hearted, petty, ugly con man. He's an awful, awful human being. What he was willing to do, victimize his own children in this selfish way. And the Lord is ultimately going to strip this man of his family and of all of his wealth. And the Lord was probably happy uh, to do that. Someone has described this event concerning this switcheroo that occurred, this little snippet within the Bible so perfectly, uh, he described it as a masterpiece of shameless treachery. And it was. And it's made all the worse because it happens within a family. This is a terrible, terrible person. Jacob protests the, descript, uh, the, the deception here in verse 25. He said, why have you deceived me? And this is perhaps the first time in Jacob's life that he has been the victim of someone else's manipulation, someone else's uh, con game, uh, somebody else's uh, deceitfulness and craftiness. And in all of this, he's merely getting a taste of his own medicine, of when he used the darkness of his father's blind eyes to deceive him into thinking that he was Esau uh, in uh, receiving the blessing from his father Isaac. And, and here the darkness of the tent and, and the darkness of that night had been used to uh, deceive him. And here he is, Jacob, he has trusted Laban to treat him fairly, even as his father Isaac, blind in that tent, said it it feels like Esau, but it smells like Jacob. It feels like Esau, but it's the voice of Jacob. Are you sure that you're Esau and you're not Jacob? And Jacob says to his blind father, No, I am Esau. And what goes around comes around in a big way in Jacob's life here. And Laban then belatedly, in verse 26, informed Jacob of a custom in the land concerning marriage. And essentially, Laban says to Jacob, Oh my did I forget to tell you all these seven years about the custom we have in the land? We never marry the younger before we marry the older. How could I have forgotten uh, that? And he is so disgusting. I'm running out of words. Uh, here he, try, he actually tries to sanctify his deceit 
by presenting himself in the situation as some kind of a guardian of local uh, customs. That somehow he is the, uh, the, uh, a man of principle in all of this and, and, and in upholding some principle. But Laban then got to what this was all about in verse 27, and he suggested a solution. And he suggested that Jacob fulfill the, the week, kind of honeymoon in those days, with Leah. And then afterwards, Rachel would be given to Jacob immediately as wife, uh, in addition to Leah, on the condition that Jacob would serve him uh, Laban seven more years. And even still, in all of this, it's, he's just utterly hard-hearted. He knows that he would never have gotten three months of service from Jacob for Leah. He wasn't interested in Leah. He didn't love Leah. And now he works this deal so that he gets uh, a Rachel price of seven years for Leah and ends up with 14 years of free labor in order to uh, receive, for Jacob to receive the one wife that he wanted. And Jacob then in verse 28, he agreed, and at the end of the week, he now has uh, two uh, wives. He didn't have to wait for seven more years for Rachel to become his. That happened immediately with the commitment to now serve seven additional years for her. And this would not be the end of Laban's craftiness toward uh, Jacob. This was only the beginning. And 20 years later, when you come to Genesis chapter 31, and it's interesting through these chapters here, Jacob is a fairly quiet man. He's a worker. He's a doer. But after 20 years of this father-in-law and this man, this Laban, this manipulator, this con man, this crafty man, Finally, at the end of 20 years, he is, uh, as he uh, finally uh, decides to escape the grip and the influence of this uh, awful person, and Jacob then, and, and Jacob uh, flees Laban with his wife, his family, all of his flocks, under the Lord's direction. Laban comes running to run them down and hunt them down. And then uh, Jacob declares to Laban what the 20 years had been like. This was only the very start. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 38, he says to his father-in-law in the presence of his two wives, These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. And that which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And there I was, in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my, sheep, my sleep departed from my eyes. And thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. And unless the God of my fathers, 
my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. You would have stolen everything from me. And God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And now all Jacob wants to do is to get away from Laban, to never see him again in his life, to never have to deal with him again in life, to be nothing like him uh, in any way, which is precisely what those 20 years were meant to teach him and to refine from his life. And God brought him to that Jacob, brought him to that Laban, so that Jacob could see what God wanted to remove from his life, his manipulation, his craftiness, his con man approach, which was not satisfactory for the plans that God had in his life. But how in the world does a Jacob or us even become aware of these things unless God puts us somewhere along the line in the presence of someone who has those same things in their life only on steroids. And that's exactly what happened. And our lives and path forward in terms of sanctification are exactly as happened to Jacob. And again, very often God will put us in contact with some Laban in life in order that God might bring some Laban-like characteristic in our lives, first of all, to our attention. And then very often to let us get a taste of our own medicine, a taste of how unpleasant that characteristic in our lives has been to other people around us in order that we might then come to see what that same trait looks like in us to others in order that it might produce a loathing in our lives for that thing that is in our lives that work of the flesh. And then with that loathing, the determination to turn from it in our lives, to allow the Holy Spirit to eradicate it from our lives, and the determination to never be like that ever again in our lives. All of life is preaching to us constantly. And I think, and wanting to teach us as well. And I think it's most pleasant to learn how to live life right based upon good examples in our lives and godly examples in our lives. But there are a lot of lessons in life that are learned as we see here in Jacob in Laban that are learned by watching the lives of human beings who are absolutely deplorable, or they are ungodly, or they are wicked, or at the very least, very, very unpleasant. 
and then realizing that their sin and their carnality as we see it in their life, even as we become a victim of it in their life, to realize that those things look no better in our lives. And then determining again by the grace of God to eradicate every bit of it from our lives presently and to never allow it a foothold in our lives in the future. And it is a hard way to learn a lesson. It is a hard means of sanctification, but is a very effective means of sanctification. There is a passage in uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30, about how much of life, not only in terms of the examples of the good and the godly, is intended to teach us, but how we are to learn even from the Labans in life. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30, Solomon wrote, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And here it is. And when I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And the book of Proverbs alone is filled with exhortations to us as Christians to learn, not only from good examples in life, but from bad examples in life. Because they're all intended to teach us something. And the book of Proverbs alone speaks uh, 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 over and over again about uh, the drunkard and drunkenness, about sexual immorality, about people uh, who gamble or try to get rich on get-rich-quick schemes as opposed to uh, hard work as a means of getting ahead of in life. Uh, it speaks about the liar continually in the book so, uh, so that when we come into contact with lying, when we become a victim of lying in other people's lives, it will make us abhor, abhor the liar who is in with, within each of us. And then all manner of foolish speaking that, that it addresses as well. I don't know about you, but I would say that fully half of my sanctification at the hands of the Holy Spirit, such as it is, has occurred as a result of some Laban I've known. And uh, in addition to the godly example of, of godly saints that, that I have seen. And God used... Laban to do an invaluable work in Jacob and he will do the same with our Labans in life as well. And so often we look at these kind of relationships in our life, relationships in our past, relationships in our presence that, present that are Labans. And we think that the time that was spent to them, the time in which our lives uh, overlapped, whether it might be a parent, whether it might be a brother or a sister or some other relative, 
or it might be a friendship or a relationship or it might be uh, someone that we were forced to be around in school or on an athletic team or whatever it might be. And the tendency so often is to look at that time as a total loss, as a total waste, that I am a complete victim of that relationship, that no good came out of that experience within my life. When nothing of the sort is true, when out of those difficult relationships comes a recognition that I have the, can have the same tendencies or those same kind of things have existed, exist in germ form in my own life. And they are so appalling and so disturbing and so unsightful to me that I determine that I will never allow that characteristic of their life to ever be a part of my life. And when that happens, something invaluable has happened within our life. It is not a complete loss at all. It is a part of sanctification and is a part of God's removal. One of the means by which He removes these kind of things from our lives. It isn't a complete waste. It's a blessing. And so maybe this morning, as we finish here now, to allow this whole incident and the perspective around it to now allow us to gain a different perspective about Laban's past and Laban's present and then to understand what is happening in God's use of Laban's future within our lives. This was a priceless thing that needed to happen in Jacob's life. And the fact that it took 20 years to happen only shows how necessary it was. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. And so that as our prayer this morning, Father, that you would use this time in your word and this chapter in your book to bring perspective into our lives about Labans that we have known in the past, Labans we know now, and Labans that will yet come into our lives, and how to process that, and how to see, Lord, your work in making even those relationships instructive and redemptive in our lives. We bless you for how you work all things together for good, within our lives in light of the great plans and purposes, eternal plans and purposes that you have for each of our lives as well as you continue to prepare us for our presence in heaven one day. We thank you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.